0: Well, good morning, church. Um, I'm very pleased to be uh, back with you guys this morning. This is, um, I think, two weeks in a row for me to be able to teach, so uh, I think it's a first on, on that. But it's, it's great to be back with you this week. Uh, we're going to be uh, continue on uh, continuing on in uh, Hosea. We'll be in chapter 11 today. And um, as we've been walking through Hosea, it's been a book of, uh, of judgment and also hope. Um, and it's a hope that goes beyond judgment. And uh, throughout the book, since um, from chapter 4 on, it's been since chapter 3 that we've really seen kind of um, the love of God in a sense. Um, we've seen much more uh, judgment, much more accusation in the Lord's indictment against His people who have been unfaithful to Him, who have gone after other gods and just rebelled Against him, and we've had a lot of strong language speaking to the judgment that is coming. But here in chapter eleven, we get kind of a breath of fresh air, and we're able to breathe a little bit because the tone of the book cha- changes entirely. Um, Henry McKeating says this: he says, says the Old Testament thinks of God largely in terms of two different and alternative images as. He said, "When he is thought of primarily as king, as the upholder of law, his justice receives emphasis. He says it is unthinkable that he should be anything but unshakably righteous, allowing no deviation from his just commands. But when he is conceived as father, it seems unthinkable that he should be anything other than compassionate." And what we see here in chapter 11 is we see a change take place in the tone of our Lord as he speaks to his people here. We see him change from anger, from a righteous anger to that of compassionate. We see him change from as a king or a judge to the one that we call on very often as our Father who is in heaven. And now this chapter is speaking speaking, spoken chiefly by the Lord. Um, and it's laying forth some of the most or the richest emotions of covenant love in all the Old Testament. It's covenant love overriding covenant law. And again, it's dealing with Israel's past. In verses 1 through 4, it's present in 5 through 7, and then Israel's future in 8 through 11. And now there's a lot of textual challenge in this text, and I will do my best as the Lord leads to share my understanding of my study of this scripture and, and what it has meant to me. So before we continue, I would like to pray and just ask the Lord to be with us during this time as we walk through this. Lord, I thank you for this morning. Um, Lord, I thank you for your church and for your people. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity uh, to be here and to share with one another your love, Lord, and just from your word and what you Think of us, how you see us, Lord. And I pray that we come away this morning with a deeper understanding of who you are and your love for us, Lord. We love you and we thank you, and it's in your name that we pray. So in verse 1, the Lord begins here, and he's, and he's taking them back, but he's not necessarily making a statement here of reminder. He's not reminding them necessarily of who they are, but what he is doing is he is stating something that took place stating something that was a reality and he says when israel was a child says i loved him and out of egypt i called my son and right here at the beginning immediately we see the personal nature of his relationship that he established with the nation when he called them out of egypt he called them my son they are his child david allen hubbard notes a tone of nostalgia In this, in chapter 9, verse 10, he says, Like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. In ten one, Israel is a luxuriant vine. In their goodness, in the positive sense, he's remembering how they spread out among the nations. And then 10, chapter 10, verse 11, Ephraim was a trained calf. And then here in verse 1, he says, When they were a child, I loved them. I called them out of Egypt. They are my son." when we see the intimacy of the relationship and it's made clear, but also the purpose to which that they should serve to the world for him. It's a son representing their father to the world. Israel's purpose as God's chosen people was to show his love and his righteousness and his character to the world around them. But every good father desires to tell the world that, hey, this is my child. But in turn... He desires for his child to then tell the world, that is my father. That is the relationship that's being built upon right here, is that Israel is his child, and his desire was for his child to tell the world, that is my father. And at this point, all they had to do was follow. That is all the nation had to do is follow. They, they were in Egypt for 400 years in slavery. The Lord called them out of that. He redeemed them from that. They crossed over the Red Sea. He provided everything they need, needed. The God of creation chose this people to be his people, and he led them and provided for them, gave them the law, gave them instruction, gave them himself and his presence among them. All they had to do was follow. Life should have been very very good for them but it makes me think of akuna matata All right i think everybody in here knows what i'm talking about All right it means no worries for the rest of your days you know they had a problem free philosophy <laughs> but they didn't have anything they didn't have anything to worry about they had the lord I can't stress that enough at the onset of this as we begin to move through this text. They had the creator of the universe call them their son, his son. They need not worry. Charles Spurgeon said this, he said, They had no such burdens to bear under the government of God as those which loaded the nations under their kings. And yet they willfully determined to have a king for themselves. No taxes were squeezed from them. No servile service was demanded at their hands. Their thank offerings and sacrifices were not, or, were not ordained upon a scale of oppression. Their liberty was all but boundless. Their lives were spent in peace and happiness and every man under his own vine and fig tree. None making them afraid. Thus was the, the state of Israel under God's kingship. But then, verse two, packed between, sandwiched between verse one and verses three and four, give they amplify the tenderness of the Lord's leading and His parenting and His care for His child. Because verse two, it says, right out of uh, verse one, out of Egypt, I called my son, I loved him. But then, verse two, but the more they were called, the more they went away. You see a negative tense here. He says, the more they were called, and it's not now that they were called by the Lord. The Lord called them out of slavery. He made them his son. But then when they got in across the Red Sea and they headed into the wilderness and they headed into the promised land, they're surrounded by all these other nations. God warns them, you are not to go and deal with these people that I am sending out from your midst. But what happens is, is these people begin to call. And the more these people called, the more they turned away. And it's the idea, it's the tension that we struggle with even today is that the Lord calls us, but there's another calling on our lives as well, and that is the world. The world around us calls us and bids us to go and play with it. Calls us to give in to the desires of our heart, give in to our flesh. You can do what you want, this is your world, rule over it. Our culture speaks to that. Very boldly, but the Lord calls, but the more the world called them, he says, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the bells and burning offerings to idols. But in their adolescence in Numbers 25, you see them that the daughters of Moab began to call the men and entice them. And the people ate and bowed down to Baal at Peor. That is at their infancy as a nation. This began to happen. What we're seeing now in Hosea is Hosea nothing new for this nation. Now, as a rebellious teenager, they were obstinate to listen to the Lord. Right? And with the rebellious son, the law gave instruction for what parents have at their disposal. What parents are to do with a rebellious son in Deuteronomy 21, verses 18 through 21. I'll give you a second to turn there. I don't have that on the screen. But the Lord knew, he knew every instance, every struggle that they would face, every need that they would have, and he provided instruction for that. And here's what the Lord gave in Deuteronomy 21, verse 18. He says, If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and though they discipline him, will not listen to them, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of his city at the gate of the place where he lives. And they shall say to the elders of the city, this our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. And he says, so shall you purge the evil from your midst and all Israel shall hear and fear. Now, I want you to imagine your rebellious teenager. That's extreme, is it not? <laughs> and I and I don't mean to I don't I don't mean to kind of poke at you for, for, for laughing. I kind of laugh too. But oftentimes we to our dismay lessen the implications of the sin in our life. This is the extremity with which the Lord treats sin that if you have a rebellious son, you have taught him, you have led him, you have disciplined him, and he continues to go his own way. The more he is called out, the more he goes, and he gets to a point where he says, if he will not respond, you are to take him to the elders of your city, and then all the men in the city are to stone him to death. That is extreme. But that is the extremity with which the Lord deals with sin. Our problem is we lessen it too often. We treat sin as a little powder puff instead of a rattlesnake. We approach it with no fear, no thought of what can damage us by it because we just give in to what we want. We don't consider it something that is very hurtful and we'll scoff at the thought of a son being killed for his rebellion, but we have no problem expecting accepting the crucifixion of another son. But we tend to only take account of what was paid, but we scarcely take an account of what we first owed and making that distinction changes should change the way we view God and view our lives and view sin but the more they were called the more they turned away and then in verse three you see here now said the Lord says yet it was I I called them out of Egypt they are my son but yet the more they were called, the more they went away. They sacrificed to the, bow, to the bells. They, they burned offerings to idols. But yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms. Right. He's, he's, he's bringing it down to that level of, of, of parentship that I brought them up. I taught them to walk. Deuteronomy 131, In the wilderness where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place. Lord says, it was I that taught you to walk. It wasn't the world that taught you to walk. It wasn't the bells. It wasn't your idols. It wasn't all these things that you go after. He's saying, it was I that taught them to walk. I took them up by their arms. I think of, 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 of my niece, one of my nieces. She's, uh, she's a baby. My, my brother um, and sister-in-law, they recently had a baby. And, and I watched my niece... At my in-law's house, and she, she's not walking yet, and she's, she's not really crawling yet either, but she will drag herself. She's going to have some, some shoulders as she gets older. She's probably going to be a swimmer, because she will. She'll just and drag herself across the floor. But I'll watch her, and she'll drag herself over to her dad, and she'll pull herself up on his leg, and he'll put his hands down and his, and his, and his fingers out, and her little hands will grab a hold, and he will hold her there as she stands. And begin to teach her to walk. If you have children in here, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But that is the idea. That is the relationship that the Lord has here. That's his mindset. Is I taught them to walk in their infancy. When they fell down, I healed them. But they did not know that I healed them or repaired them. Right? When your children fall, when they hurt themselves, when they get a boo-boo, you put, a, you put a Band-Aid on it. You know, put some peroxide on it. You blow on it for them. You make them feel better. And that's the idea. Is he's, I did these things for them. I healed them, and they didn't even know it. I look at my niece. She's going to understand one day that her dad taught her to walk, but in the moment, she doesn't know right now that it's her dad that taught her to walk. That's the idea. He says, I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I came to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. But another word another way word for kindness there is I led them with cords of man or I led them humanely. And some people rendered the third clause of this verse to say instead of I I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws it can also be rendered as I was to them like those who lift infants to their cheeks. The word for jaws in the Hebrews can be traded can be translated when it pertains to an animal to jaws but when it turns to a pertains to a person, it's translated cheeks. But the idea is that he lifts them up to their cheeks like a baby and comforts them, holds them close and closely. But this would keep with the metaphor of the parent-child relationship, but we've seen elsewhere in Hosea where he has spoken of a, a trainer-animal relationship. But it's the idea that he takes care of them. He eases the yoke from their jaws. He leads them with cords of kindness, not, not yanking on reins, And harshly instructing where they would go. But he leads them well and kindly. And as they bend down to eat, he makes sure that yoke does not slide down their neck and over their face where they can't eat. He takes care of them and he feeds them. Now verse 5, we're turning back to their present. He says, they shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king because they have refused to return to me. He says, since they have refused, there is a refusal there. That's the first time and only time in Hosea that he has used that word. But, but Jeremiah uses that word 10 or 12 times. That they refused to return to him. And because they refused to the return to the Lord, he will return them then to their slavery. But they shall not, that word not could also be, they shall surely return to the land of Egypt. Now, there's two ways to think through this here. In this particular, shall surely not return to the land of Egypt. As in, they had alliances with Egypt. They sought protection from Assyria from Egypt. And it's likely that some people, whenever Assyria came down to to take them over, that they escaped to Egypt. And if that's the case, the Lord is saying they shall not return there. They're going to be, Assyria shall be their king. But it can also be said they shall return surely return to the land of Egypt. And if you look at land of Egypt throughout Hosea, it's used and it's synonymous as a symbol for their slavery or their exile. So here speaking, they shall surely return to the land of Egypt, the symbol of their slavery or exile, but Assyria will be the actual location of it. That's the idea. But throughout the book, Egypt and Assyria often appear as a fixed pair You can note uh, chapter 7, verse 11, 9, 3, 11, 11, 12, 1. But the figurative symbol is Egypt, and the literal place of their exile is Assyria. Then in verse 6, he says, The sword shall rage against their cities. It could consume the bars of their gates and devour them because of their own counsels. Now, there's trouble here as well. The Hebrew word for bars could mean several different things. Uh, among them is one loose talk or boasting. The second could be uh, be of persons and not things and mean, mean um, oracle priests or diviner prophets. So perhaps one, uh, the sword will rage against their cities. It will consume their arrogance, not their bars, but their arrogance and devour them because of their counsels or their plans. The people became wise in their own eyes. They didn't seek after the Lord. They believed what they wanted to believe and they led themselves the way they wanted to lead or allowed something else to lead them. But they were wise in their own eyes. Proverbs 3, 7 and 8 says, Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. If not, Proverbs 26, 12 says, Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? It says, There is more hope for a fool than for him. And there is a lot in Scripture to be said about the fool and what will become of him. But it's the idea that that they're they're leading or they're following their own counsels instead of the counsel of the Lord. Any time in our life when we become wise in our own eyes and we disregard the instruction of the Lord and what he would say and go our own way, what tends to happen? Oftentimes, we lead ourselves to struggle, to hardship. And many times, I mean, when we think through there's something over here that I fear, that I don't want to experience, and in our own wisdom, instead of seeking the Lord in order to escape the thing that we fear, we take this way. But oftentimes, taking that way leads us to the very thing that we fear. Anybody testify to that? That is the idea, is they sought their own way, wise in their own eyes, following their own counsel, and it leads them back to the slavery with which God called them out of. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, trust in, trust, don't, do not trust in your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge God and he will make your path straight. Don't lean on yourself, lean on God and he will make your path straight. From point A to point B, he will guide us there. But when we're wise in our own eyes, we make crooked that path. When I think of my life in terms of a point A and a point B, I recall a time when I was in high school, maybe my sophomore or junior year, I go to camp, And I'm at camp, and as what happens at camp, if you've ever been to camp, you get up here, you experience things, you get pumped up, you're ready to just do for the Lord, right? And I felt at camp that particular time something different. I felt the Lord place a call on my life to ministry. I had no idea what that looked like, but I recall going home. I recall going home and talking to my mom. We were walking around the pool in the backyard. She's watering flowers, and I tell her, I feel as if the Lord is, is calling me to ministry. I told my, 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 my youth pastor at the time, I feel like the Lord's calling me to ministry. That's point A. But somewhere along the way, I stopped choosing to follow the Lord and started following my own way, doing what was wise in my own eyes. And I made a very, very, over a decade-long crooked path to point B. But praise the Lord, His purpose stands there is a point B and we can either trust the Lord to make straight that path to point B or we can choose our own way and go in a crooked path that is destructive, that is hurtful, that in my life left me in pain and despair many times over because I trusted in my own way instead of trusting in the Lord. Now perhaps secondly here, that the sword because would consume them because they trusted in their military strategist. If we would translate it that way, that it would be their oracle priests, those that would come on the day of battle and they would give, give counsel, their counsel to their generals that, hey, you should do this way. They'll cast lots for an outcome here. And the Lord says, you will not do that and I will destroy you for seeking after those things instead of after me. Or thirdly, it could simply mean that he will destroy or consume the bars of their gates. Chapter 10, verse 14, your fortresses shall be destroyed. But the idea here is that in verse 4, the Lord fed them. 3, he taught them to walk. Verse 4, he fed them. And now because they have turned away, the sword will feed on them. That's the idea. In verse 7, he says, my people now are bent. They're bent on turning away from me. And though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all but bent, they're bent, they have a determined habit. They habitually turn away from me, he says, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. Now, there's difficulty here as well. One way you could take this is that they call out to the Most High being God, and then God will not raise them up at all. All He's going to do what he says that he will do and execute his judgment on them. But another way to look at that is different, is that they call out to Baal, not the Most High, not God. But the word for high can be translated also upward. If you look at chapter 7, verse 16, it says, They return, but not upward. The word there can also, in that instance, has been translated most high. They return, but not to the Most High. But that word also is used for Baal but the way that i look at this verse here is, is if you consider the way he speaks in verse 7 he says my people he's speaking from the first person the entirety of this chapter is the lord speaking and up to verse 7 he says my people are bent on turning away from me but then you see a shift to the third person but they seek after the most high and he shall not raise them up at all and then verse 8 in cha- verse 8 he says now back to first person I, how can I give him up? You see the change? And then to me, the change seems a little odd. But either way you look at that, they're going to call, but they're just, their judgment is still going to stand. But I view it as my people are bent on turning away. If they turn away from the Lord, that means they're turning away to something. And in this sense, we know it to be the bales and the gods of the people around them. And they return, but not upward. They call out for help, but he does not raise them up at all, nor can he raise them up at all if they're calling out to Baal in this sense. But then he shall not raise them up at all. That seems to contradict the following verses that are to come and what the Lord now does. But as we get to verse 8, we see now a window into God's love. We see an emotional shift from his anger, his righteous anger, now to compassion. We see him all the way from from chapter 4 all the way to this point, laying down his indictment against his people and the judgment that is to come, that the sword is going to rage against their cities. It's going to consume them. It's going to devour them. And then here you have, in in verse 8, he says, how can I give you up? You see this, this tension begin to turn within him as these emotions begin to come, as these emotions begin to come over him. He says, How can I give you up, O Ibrahim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboam? I mean, just this turmoil that he has, that he seems to have is how can I do this? I can't do this. You're my people, you're my son. How can I destroy you? But God's love goes across time. It is everlasting. Isaiah 54, 8. In overflowing anger for a moment, I hid my face from you, he says. But with everlasting love, I have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. And it takes me back to chapter 3 where the Lord instructed Hosea to go find Gomer and to buy her back to redeem her. The word redeem means to buy back for a price with the purpose of setting free. And the Lord says that in a moment, my anger in a moment, I hid my face from you, but my love is everlasting. I will have compassion on you. God is saying, you are my son, I love you. How can I give you up? How can I hand you over? In the cities of Adma and Zeboam, they were satellite cities to Sodom and Gomorrah. They were to Sodom and Gomorrah the way Mesquite and Sunnyvale are to Dallas, you know, or Garland is to Dallas. People in New York may have heard or know of Dallas, Texas, but they scarcely know of Mesquite or Sunnyvale. That's the idea. That's these places in relation to Sodom and Gomorrah because people the world over know and understand Sodom and Gomorrah to be the epitome of wickedness and depravity in human history. And we know what happened to those cities. But when we look at places like Adma and Zeboam, if not for a handful of verses connecting them to Sodom and Gomorrah, they're a footnote in history. Their ruins have not even been found to this day. But the Lord, what he's saying is his his desire is to not reduce his people to a footnote in history. That they would scarcely be remembered because that's his people. That's his child, his children. But a place that I want to take you to real quick is I want you to imagine as parents. For the parents in here, the parents watching online or the parents in Edgewood, consider for a moment a time when as a parent you had your child and you've taught them, you've taught them to walk, you've led them, you've disciplined them, you've given them instruction. You've told them what to do, what not to do. They know good from bad but think of a time where you've told them to do something 10 times, and now the 11th time they're over there doing it, and you see it. You see it. They're caught red-handed. They're in the moment, and they're doing it, and something wells within you very, very swiftly, just a burning anger in your soul. And you see it, and you just move. I mean, you're instantly you're heading in their direction, and they see you, and they know what's up. It's different this time. Mom's different. Dad's different. It's serious. Something is different this time because they know they've done wrong. And you just and they just you get over there. You get down their face and you get right down here on their level. You're looking them in the eye. Your face is mad. You have that tense tone, anger all over you. You are no longer going to spare the rod, and you are ready to lay down your judgment upon your child for their disobedience. To you but in that moment you look into your child's eyes and you see the tears begin to well up huge huge bubbly tears and what you see in their eyes is brokenness and fear because they don't know what's about to come they know they've done something wrong but they're not quite sure what's about to happen they have an inkling of it but you see brokenness and fear and what happens in your heart is a shift takes place from anger to compassion. For this is my child, this is my son, this is my daughter. How can I break them right now? And in your compassion, it stays your hand. And in that moment, parents, in that moment, you have exemplified the heart and love of God for his people. You have set before your child an example of God's steadfast love Discipline happens nonetheless. Punishment, though, is made far less severe in that moment. But you have made an example of yourself in the heart of God and that you did not act in your anger, and that is where the Lord is at. He says, my heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. It recoils. It's, It's like you're stretching a rubber band, and no matter how fast or how slow you stretch that rubber band, there's only so far that it can go. But as soon as you let it go, how fast does it come back to its original place? Instantly. And that's the idea. All this time the Lord has been mad, but then his heart recoils within him. He has compassion. It grows warm and tender. And then in verse 9, I will not execute my burning anger. You see the decision, the tension that he had, the rhetorical questions that he asked, but then the answer for them them is, I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst. I will not come in wrath. His hand is stayed, and this is not to mean that he's no longer having a burning anger. That would be a misunderstanding of what what it's saying. He says, I will not execute my burning anger. That's not to say that he doesn't have a burning anger. But he chooses not to act in that burning anger, but instead chooses to act in his compassion and love. And what you see here is those two emotions in perfect balance. And then he says, I am God, not a man. And if we can settle there for just a second in that idea and wrap our head around it, how we operate versus how God operates. Because when we think of our anger and how we want to unleash that anger, we want to feed the flesh in that sense and give full vent to it. And many times we do and we reap the consequences of letting that out. I myself often have to remind myself of James 1.20 that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. But the anger of God produces the just compassion and love of God. They're in perfect balance and perfect unity because He is God and He is not man. We all too often try to project our standards onto God. We try and place Him in this box and tell Him to operate in this area Because we scarcely and cannot wrap our minds around the way he works in his perfection. Max Anders wrote this. He said, humans have no standards by which to judge God. He sets the standards for right and wrong. God does not live by some legalistic system that says under these conditions you must do this and only this. The Lord lives by love. The Holy One is is the totally different one. He can act as his nature tells him to act. He does not have to ask for justification of his acts. But we want God to do what we think should be done. Because we are all too often, we are completely driven by our emotions when we are overcome by our emotions. But God is divinely purposeful in his. And divinely balanced in his. And then he says, I am the holy one in your midst. His holiness is not exemplified here in terms of power, wisdom, or sovereignty, but His his holiness is exemplified in His love. His overwhelming, everlasting, unyielding love for His people. And He says, I will not come in wrath. Wrath could also be translated into the city. I will not come into the city, perhaps connecting back to verse 6, when the city was the target of the sword that would come and devour them. But he says, "I will not come in that way. He will discipline them, yes, but out of his love and not out of his out of his anger." Hebrews twelve five through eleven. I'll read that for you here. It says, "The writer says this, and have have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves." And chastises every son whom he receives. For it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and are not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but painful rather than pleasant, but later yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. The Lord is He's 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 not going to leave us to do whatever we want. He will give us over to those things for a time. But if we were His people, if you were called by His name, He will discipline you to position your heart back to Him. But the judgment that would destroy will not fall on you because of His love, his love for you. And then in verse to the Lord, They shall go after or follow the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When He roars, His children shall come trembling from the west. Recall chapter 3, verse 5. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. There's a future point where the Lord is going to come and he's going to roar and his people are going to hear and they're going to respond and they're going to return. And it says here from the, from the west. It's, it's strange that he says west, but interesting that he says from the west. Uh, their exile, Israel, or Assyria, is to the east. Egypt is, to the, is westerly, but it's understood to be to the south. But he says, my people are going to return from the west. What is to the west at this point in time in their writing is the great sea. It's the, it can be understood as the unknown beyond. It's the world, vast world beyond what they know. And today, presently, the people of God are dispersed all over this world. But he says, when he comes, at some point in the future upon his second coming, when he comes to rule and reign for a thousand years, he's going to come like a lion. He's going to roar. In verse 11, they shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. He says, I will return. Return them to their homes, declares the Lord. They will come trembling. Instead of walking away, in verse 2, they are now returning with a complete understanding of who He is. Exodus 19, verse 16 says, On the morning of the third day, whenever the Lord descends upon Mount Sinai, and He's about to give the law, the Ten Commandments, to Moses, on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast." So that all the people in the camp trembled, but they trembled. They were in fear of the Lord because they understood 100% who it was that was descending from heaven on that mountain to present to them his command. And here, when he roars and he calls, they will return trembling, knowing who God is, knowing who their father is. And he says, I will return them or make them to dwell in their homes. It is a complete restoration of his people. It's like Luke 15, with the prodigal son when he returned to his father and his father runs out and embraces him and hugs him and places his robe upon him, a ring on his finger, and shoes on his feet. He completely restores his son. God is effectually saying that he will not take his son outside the city and stone him to death because he knows that eventually his salvation would come and it would come in the ultimate display of his unyielding love. John 3:16 for God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son to carry his own cross outside of the city to his crucifixion to be put to death not for his own rebellion but for yours, for mine. Amen. That is the ultimate love of God for his people. That is his burning anger stayed For you and I and his love poured out on the cross in his son, Jesus. That is his compassion. That is his mercy. That is his love. For us, for you and for I. Now to wrap up with this, a long time ago, um, God's man Abraham, he had Isaac. He was the son of promise. Then Isaac had two sons. He had twins. He had the older Esau and he had the younger Jacob. And Esau was ruddy. He was callous. He was immoral. He was a slave to his appetite to sell his birthright for a meal. And his younger brother Jacob was soft. He was selfish. He was a deceitful schemer who tricked his brother into giving up his birthright for a meal. He fooled his blind father into blessing him instead. Both of these two men, flawed in every way. But nonetheless, God's blessing went to Jacob, who would eventually be renamed Israel, which literally means wrestles with God. It is in Jacob that the nation is now named Israel. And their name would prove, it would define, it would define them for thousands of years. but two equally flawed men. It's said that a woman once said to Charles Spurgeon, I cannot understand why God should say that he hated Esau. That, Spurgeon replied, is not my difficulty, madam. My trouble is to understand how God could love Jacob. The reality for me, church, is that we are all deserving of the same wrath. Every single one of us, every single one of us has gone our own way. We have rebelled against the holy God in one way or another. The more the world has called in some way, the more we have turned away. But the Lord calls us back to himself. We are all deserving of the same wrath, but we all get to experience the same everlasting and unyielding love of God. There will be a future day of judgment. That day will come. He will draw his people back. But for those that are not his, those that are not con- called sons or daughters, will experience that judgment. But he calls us to himself to experience the love, experience him as father rather than as king or judge. But I pray that we would Come to a place of humility, owning our own sin, our own rebellion, our own standard of doing things and how doing things and how broken they are compared to God's righteousness, and humble ourselves before Him. As He calls us to give us His righteousness and His love that we may accept that. Lord, I thank you for today. I thank you for this morning. I thank you, Lord, for. For your love, Lord, I thank you for your call on my life, Lord, that you called me out of darkness and into your wonderful light, Lord. I thank you, Lord, that that, that you were unceasing in your love to me, no matter how much I strayed or I rebelled against you, how I chose or refused your way and made crooked my own path, Lord, you stayed with me through it all, Lord. You sought me out in my brokenness, Lord. And you redeemed me from the pit, Lord, from the lostness of my ways and the destruction that I created for myself, Lord. And You invited me, Lord, to bask in the light of your love. On this side of heaven, Lord, we are going to experience struggle and pain. For the brokenness of this world is still the brokenness of this world, Lord, and we still live in it, but you have called us to your love, Lord, that allows us to walk through it. Hardship will come, but your love will always stand, Lord. And one day when you come and you call us, Lord, we will all come to you trembling I pray that for your people this morning God that we would know you we would understand you more Lord and accept the love that you would like to give Lord Lord I love you and I thank you Lord and I just uh, I praise your name Lord and I pray that in these last moments Lord as we sing to you Lord that we recognize you're undying, you're unyielding, your unfading love for your people. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.